Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Nighthawk. Welcome to History Hack. In fact, welcome to the first instalment of our special Friday show, which is Polish Picks. The premise behind this is Alina, in case you hadn't noticed by her impossible to pronounce surname, is Polish and she has so many contacts and we have so many esteemed Polish historians lining up to talk to us that we thought, what the hell, we'll go a little bit highbrow and on a Friday afternoon we will bring you um, a little bit of specifically English language but Polish focused history Um, and the response so far to this idea has been great. Um, Alina, who is going to join us first off? So our first guest I'd like to introduce to you for our special Polish segment is Dr. Paweł Markiewicz. He's from Boston, now residing in Warsaw, Poland. He's currently working on having his PhD thesis published on the German-Ukrainian collaboration in the general government during the Second World War. Look, having read the paper, I'm actually really looking forward to the published copy, so I can't wait. And our listeners will be happy to know that his work will be published in English. So, Pavel, welcome on our podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Do- so you are in Warsaw now, aren't you? And like Alina, you're apparently... So you're one of these people that flew in from elsewhere. So the Polish government have essentially put you under house arrest for two weeks. But apparently you had a complete nightmare getting back from... Was it Washington you came in from? I was, yeah. I was um, in Washington, D.C. With my, with my work. Um, and then they decided to evacuate me, so I had to actually fly from Washington, D.C. to Miami, Florida to catch a Polish plane there to fly back to Warsaw. Wow. Um, and now you're not allowed yeah. out. And are the police checking on you every day like they are with Alina, or is that just Alina because she's trouble? No, you know what? I had my first police visit this morning, actually. <laughs> They've obviously got Alina Marks as some source of potential civil unrest or uh, <laughs> trouble, or they're, they're keeping an especial eye on her, which, I, frankly, I'm not surprised. Um, so enough about this virus. We keep talking about it because uh, it's, it's why we're here, because we're trying to entertain people through it. Um, but let's start the ball rolling on your fascinating um, topic. So... Um, First of all, tell me, a complete layman and someone who has no specialism in Polish history, tell me a little bit about Ukrainian life pre-World War II in Poland. Sure. Um, I think the best way to kind of describe how, how it was was the relations were, were pretty complex um, within the Second Polish Republic. Ukrainians constituted the largest ethnic minority um, within the Republic once the borders were, were constituted after 1921 and the Polish governments, depending on the time frame, 
had various um, approaches how to how to kind of assimilate the Ukrainians uh, into 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 Poland. Um, some of the governments chose what's called the um, national assimilation approach, where they try to forcibly polonize them as quickly as possible through education um, to make them Poles almost overnight, um, one can say. After 1926, when, when Marshal Piłsudski had, um, uh, had his coup to overthrow you know, the, the previous governments, and then his, his um, pro-governments that supported him were in place, there was a different approach, which was assimilation through the state, where his government sought to kind of gain Ukrainian loyalty to the Polish state, not exactly to being ethnically Polish. Um, so it kind of vacillated in between those areas. And I mean, Ukrainian life was mm, constituted in the southeastern parts of Poland for the most part. Um, and you had a whole array of, of political parties. Um, you had leftist parties. You had more, more centrist parties. Um, there were also the radical um, Ukrainian nationalists who were probably the most vociferous when it came to being anti-state. Um, they saw being within the borders of Poland as, as being under a foreign power. Right? Their goal was, after World War I, throughout the interwar period, and even during World War II, to fight for an independent Ukrainian state that would emerge, a Ukraine for Ukrainians almost. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the gist of how the situation looked before the war. I mean, I, I had I had li literally no idea that they that they were like as you say the biggest ethnic minority within Poland. So this is all fascinating for me. Alina, you carry it on from here because I fully admit. Yeah. I'm topic. Uh, well, we'll well as Pavel and I know um, the history, and, and probably some of our listeners know that the history does get quite complex. Um, I actually spent time reading Pavel's uh, work um, over the past couple of days. And in his work, he actually mentions uh, a gentleman, a Ukrainian Polish gentleman called uh, Volodymyr Kubiowicz. Um, and he actually quite fascinated me, um, his whole ideology and things. And I was kind of hoping you'd tell us more about him and, and you know, basically just how fascinating this guy actually is. Yeah, I mean, I chose Kubiowicz because um, I think he's an example of of kind of the complexity of the Polish-Ukrainian relationship um, during the interwar period at the time, right? He was born um, into a family where his father was Ukrainian, his mother was Polish, his father was Greek Catholic, his mother was Roman Catholic. Um, this was very common, of course, in, in interwar Poland, and even before that, where, where you'd have these inter-ethnic, inter-ritual marriages. Um, as was common in those kinds of families, usually, the sons would follow the father's footsteps, meaning that they'd be raised in the Greek Catholic rite. They'd usually follow kind of the Ukrainian side, while uh, daughters would follow the mother's side, the Polish Roman Catholic side. Um, so keeping in that kind of sense, Kubiowicz went in the direction of his father. He kind of had this Ukrainian awakening um, and, and identified himself at a very early age as Ukrainian and not Polish. Reading his memoirs, which were published in 1970 and then in 1985, shortly before he passed away, um, he mentions that he had no, he respected his mother, he loved his mother, he had no issues with her, 
that that she was Polish. Um, and I think he even says that it kind of helped him to better understand the other side as well, right, as he was growing up. So it, it kind of helped him mitigate the situation as best as he could growing up in, in, a, in a dual ethnic family, so to speak. So reading more about about him, I actually I came across um, an interesting question that I actually really want to ask you about. Um, it's to do with uh, Mihailo's, uh, Mihailo Khrushchev's, oh my gosh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> do what we do in England. This is, the Eng this is the English side of you, Elena. Just do what we do and just call him Dave if it's too much of a struggle. <laughs> uh, so Dave Khrushchevsky, right, we're going to go down this road. Um, he, <laughs> sorry, it's just, for me, I've written it out phonetically in Polish and I still haven't gotten the name right. Um, so he actually wrote um, um, a multi-volume history of Ukraine um, of, start again, I'm really apologising, a multi-volume history of Ukraine and Russia. And apparently he read it when he was 13, uh, Kubiovich. My question is, how do you think that actually influenced him and in his decisions and his future decisions? Well, I think, I think reading Khrushchevsky's right, epic multi-volume history of Ukraine and, and Kievan Rus was, was very instrumental. But I think it's, it's not just that. It, it kind of alludes back to what he was talking about, um, what he wrote about actually in his memoirs when he was younger and growing up. He said that there were always books in the home, right? It was something that, that he, was, he did with his parents quite often as they'd sit and read. So he, he not only read Ukrainian authors or, or Ukrainian books that came in via his father, but he also said that he wrote, or he read, excuse me, a lot of the epic Polish um, novels that were written by Sienkiewicz, for example, Fire and Sword, The Deluge, all those kinds of classics from his mother's side as well. But I think that reading the history of, of Ukraine by Khrushchevsky had an impact on him because it gave him an idea of what Ukraine was, right? This, the, the history that Khrushchevsky wrote tells the story. It was one of the first modern historical epics written on the history of Ukraine, from Kievian Rus all the way to, I believe, the 18th century. And it kind of gives this idea of what Ukraine is, what it was, where its borders ran, which is very important as well, right? And that kind of molded, um, in my opinion, much of his later beliefs um, when he became a geographer and when he became, or when he started to delineate his idea of what Ukraine looked like. And um, just asking you, so I, I did a bit of reading as well. Um, the polls of him, the polls, were they really critical of him in the mid-1930s? And, and if so, why is that? They were. Um, Kubiovich essentially received a doctorate at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow um, in geography, right? And anthropo anthropo anthropological geography as well. Um, he did a lot of, of studies on uh, mountain ranges in southeastern Poland and things along those lines. But when he started to um, get more attention from Poles, was when he started publishing materials on the, the statistical data of Ukrainians in the Second Polish Republic. Um, and much of this, much of his studies contradicted the official government 
statistics, data, the official government line, that there weren't as many Ukrainians in Poland as, for example, Kubiovich would say that they were. Um, and this got him in a lot of hot water, actually. He was looked down upon um, in, the, in some of the Polish press. His articles were uh, criticized. He was criticized. Even the Jagiellonian University was criticized for employing him. Um, and what came of that was that in June 1939, he was essentially terminated from the university for, um, for that kind of work. So just about a few months before the outbreak of war, he lost his job. And Alina, Am I actually right? Sorry, yeah. go on, Alex. No, no, I was going to say, I, th I think you're on it because you told me something um, that you think is quite controversial and you're going to ask Pavel, aren't you? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I am actually, we were discussing this before, um, before we actually started the podcast. I mentioned this to Alex. Um, Am I actually right in hearing that the Ukrainian government is going to actually honor him? Is, is this true? That's correct. Um, the Ukrainian parliament recently passed a resolution um, to, to honor certain, certain individuals this year, and Kubiovich is actually one of them, because this year marks the 120th anniversary of his birth, um, as he was born in 1900, a nice round year. So um, they are honoring him for his work as a scholar, geographer, and, and things along those lines. So listen, let's move on a little bit into, um, into the Second World War. I mean, that's, that's the, what we're here for. Right. Um, and I actually threw this question at Alex, but I'm going to get Alex, Alex to answer this question, ask this question, sorry. Yeah, because uh, I don't get this at all, um, and I need you to spell it out in, in layman terms for me. So I, I keep hearing about this, um, this concept of German-Ukrainian common destiny. Can you explain to me like, what that is and how it comes about? Well, I think the common destiny really was centred in um, the nationalist approach to creating some kind of an autonomous region or state um, with the Germans and, and being the Germans' bulwark in the East against anything communist, Soviet, Bolshevik, right? Um, that's kind of where that lays in, in, in. As we're on the topic of um, kind of towards the Second World War, uh, for our listeners out there um, who aren't World War II knowledgeable or don't know much about Poland, the general governor of uh, occupied Poland was Hans Frank. And I was actually quite interested in the whole stance, well, his stance on the Poles and the Ukrainians 
Pavel, can you elaborate a little bit on uh, on this for me? Sure. Um, obviously, when the general government was created from from the parts of central Poland that weren't directly annexed into the into the Third Reich, um, the Germans were met with um, a large Polish population, as well as a sizable Ukrainian population uh, within within the eastern and southeastern parts of the general government. Now, added to that, about twenty to thirty thousand Ukrainians actually fled from the those territories that were occupied by the Soviets in 1939, right? So, so that influx of a very intellectual, well-organized, um, we could say, emigre community into the general government also added to, to the mix. Um, now, Frank's policy was the kind of classic approach of dividing and conquering among these, these certain ethnic groups. Right. So what we see is that in the hierarchy that was formed by, by the, the German officials, Jews and Poles were at the bottom. Of course, Germans, Volksdeutsche were at the top and kind of sandwiched in between were Ukrainians who had a little more um, leeway, for example, than Poles, but not as much as the Volksdeutsche or, or the ethnic Germans that were in the general government. Much of Frank's policy was to flirt with the Ukrainians, to kind of flirt with their aspirations, to give them a little bit of what the, what the Polish state didn't want to give them during the interwar period, to gain their loyalty without giving up much in return. That was most of his, what his politics were based on. To gain, that, to gain the Ukrainian loyalty as an added lever um, to neutralize Poles as well. Right? Because we have to remember that as much as many as 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 much as the Germans' uh, administration was in Poland, they were still in a in a vast minority in the general government in comparison to Poles, right? So so by cutting away Ukrainians from the Polish mass, gaining their loyalty through certain concessions, social concessions, Frank wanted to use them as a lever also against the Poles when he could. Can to I kind of to kind of and, um, to kind of even let me just add to kind of keep the ethnic antagonism that was going on before the war still going on but in a way that the germans could control it right i just wanted to ask what kind of can you give us some examples of these kinds of concessions if possible no absolutely um i think the germans the germans were were very clever in that they went with as i said a lot of the the concessions a lot of the concessions that they gave came from simply what most of the, what the Poles didn't want to or, or marginalize Ukrainians in. For example, they allowed the Ukrainians um, to, to create schools, a, a school system within the general government in the areas that they inhabited. Elementary schools, gymnasiums, um, vocational schools. During the interwar period, at a certain time, um, these Ukrainian language schools or Ukrainian schools were marginalized. Right, they were turned into virtually dual-language Polish-Ukrainian schools, which meant they were in essence Polish schools. So there was this educational concession. There was a religious concession as well, um, especially in parts of the Lublin district, where the Orthodox Church before the war was um, was heavily criticized, and in fact there was a, an anti-Orthodox um, kind of operation by the Polish government in which church property was seized and given to the Roman Catholic Church. So the Germans came and they started reversing this trend 
giving those churches back that were seized back to the Ukrainians, making a big show out of it, making them feel that um, they were in fact doing something for them. There was a Ukrainian press that ran um, from, from 1939, from 1940 to, to the end of the war in the general government. Uh, the Ukrainian cooperatives, they were allowed to, to flourish again. So these were, like I said, these were social concessions. They were pretty straightforward in that um, the Germans pretty much allowed the Ukrainian, the, the built-up angst that Ukrainian nationalists had to vent out through this, through this system of social concessions, but it didn't get out of control, right? They were able to mitigate it. How, how did Poles react? It was, it was, it was mixed. Um, pretty much until about 1941, the Polish underground looked on and, and there were certain types of um, attacks against some of the, the more prominent Ukrainians in villages or in towns. Um, but this certainly, these attacks increased after about 1943, when the occupation system was starting to fall apart. Um, and when the, the underground government mitigated orders saying that, you know, any, any traitors to the Polish state would be dealt with. And of course, traitors was kind of a, a far-reaching term for, for however one wanted to define it. And there were more attacks against these, these um, prominent Ukrainians. So going back to Kubiovich, um, what did he want to achieve through his cooperation with the Germans? Well, I think one of the main things that he sought to achieve was to kind of pull the Ukrainians up to, uh, to a social level that was equal to what the Poles were at the interwar period, right? He wanted to, to build up that social base of an intelligentsia, a kind of religious class, a merchant class. Um, and that, I think, was figured into this kind of greater nationalist vision of preparing for some kind of a future Ukrainian state, a future Ukrainian region, autonomous region, so on and so forth. Um, and that's pretty key because on, on numerous occasions, Kubiovich was also very vocal with the German authorities of ethnically cleansing um, mixed areas where Poles and Ukrainians lived, on, lived on territory that he considered to be part of the, the future or part of ethnographic Ukraine, right? He was very vocal in this. He wanted the, the German hand kind of to, to set the stage for what would eventually be or what could eventually be um, territory that would be included in a Ukrainian state. So this, was, this all lay in his kind of geographic vision of what Ukraine would be, wouldn't be, and he, he tied himself to cooperating with the Germans to get the most that he could out of them for the Ukrainian cause. Right. Now, that didn't mean that he always got what he wanted. Ukraines were also arrested. Um, they were rounded up. They were sent to camps. It wasn't that they were simply right, treated, treated better all the time. But through his efforts, Kubiovich sought to gain the best that he could for them um, throughout the war and to leverage that as best as he could for, for the future. Pavel, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, Alina mentioned that your PhD is going to be published as well. Do you know when that will be yet? Uh, well, I'm still in the process of revising the text and preparing a draft manuscript, so it might be a little bit, but stay tuned. Well, it's not like you don't have time on your hands now, is it? But 
make that's me a promise true. True. <laughs> make me a promise let us know when it's done and we will plug it on history hack and tell people where they can get it definitely awesome um alina i think i'm really excited about our little polish pick now i don't know about you i know right there's some really great historians coming on board and i'm doing lots of reading that's actually helping with my own research so i'm kind of being a little bit selfish at the moment sorry yeah i haven't done any of my own research so yeah i'm not bitter at all but uh, okay anyway pavel thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure um next week for thank our you <laughs> Awesome and good luck uh, getting out of quarantine. Um, but although I understand uh, you guys, isn't the Polish government locking everybody down now? I, I think that yeah, I think they've you know said to anybody that can stay home, stay home. I think I've just broken you, haven't you? I've just told you basically that you're under house arrest indefinitely, and you didn't know. What? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. They, um... <laughs> <laughs> they've uh, they've brought in some new uh, new things uh, last night, basically, where you should only really be going to work if you have to. Um, you can go out and walk the dog, go shopping, go to the pharmacy. So um, we're kind of all stuck at home, just like everyone else. Which means that we can have another Polish pick next week. Um, and oh, I'm really excited because even I've heard of this guest. So uh, Sławomir Demski, the director of the Polish Institute of International Affairs and a renowned and brilliant historian is um, going to join us. Now we're going to set up a QA. and uh, a Broadly speaking, at the moment we're just finalising the exact title um, now, but it's going to be about the relationship between Russia and Poland historically uh, and coming into now. Um, but we will put out on uh, the Twitter feed as soon as we know exactly what he's going to talk about um, and we will welcome your questions for him. Um, so that is it for this week. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. We've hoped uh, that you have enjoyed um, a little bit of a specialist angle um, and something a little bit more serious than what we usually do. Um, and for now, uh, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Alina as well. Uh, remember, stay safe. And if you can possibly stay at home and we'll see you again next week. This is Nighthawk over and out.